Hello, I am David Osman. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. With me today is Leila Miller of China Beige Book. Our title for this podcast is China, CBB Propriety Data Tells a Different Story. The Independent Research Forum promotes an extensive range of top quality independent research and data providers, both macro and micro. Many are global, some are country specific, some sector specific, some are stock pickers, all are investment related. Chinese President Xi Jinping has been in power for a decade. His reign is expected to be extended for another five years or more at the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party later this year. In the last 10 years, China has made tremendous progress, but it now faces many severe challenges, including harsh COVID restrictions, a deeply troubled property sector, and deteriorating international relations with key trading partners, particularly the USA. What will this mean for the Chinese economy and financial markets? both in the short term and in the longer run. To discuss these issues, I'm particularly pleased that we're joined today by Leila Miller, who is the founder and CEO of China Beige Book. Leila Miller is a noted authority on China's economy and financial system. Before co-founding China Beige Book in New York in 2010, Leyland was a capital markets attorney based out of New York and Hong Kong for a major investment bank. He holds a law degree from the University of Virginia School of Law, a master's degree in Chinese history from Oxford University, a BA degree in European history from Washington and Lee University, and he has a graduate Chinese language fellowship from Tunghai University in Taiwan. Leyland is also an elected member of the National Committee on US-China Relations and the Economic Club of New York. He is an elected life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a board member of the Global Interdependence Centre, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brent Snowcross Centre on International Security at the Atlantic Council. China Beige Book operates its own in-country private data network in China that provides independent economic data to their corporate and financial sector clients including nearly two dozen of the world's largest central banks. Every quarter, CBB collects private data from surveys of 4,000 executives across 34 industries. The CBB surveys are 10 times larger than those of private China purchasing managers' indices. The breadth and depth of CBB's forecasting record is second to none in the China-watching world. Leyland, welcome. Let's begin with a brief introduction to the advisory service that China Beige Book provides to your clients. Hi, David. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, you did a you did a nice little intro. I, the, what I will supplement by that is saying we are the only large scale private data collection operation in the world operating inside the Chinese economy. So, on the one hand, if you don't believe Chinese government data, and if you do, then this is a whole nother problem. Uh, we are the only large-scale alternative resource uh, that will, will, that will uh, cite alternative data and also alternative d- dynamics. Uh, the other part of that, of course, is that we don't just put out growth numbers. We don't try to, to put out an alternative GDP number or alternative PMI number. Uh, we track not just 
uh, growth, uh, growth dynamics, but also the labor market, also inflation dynamics, and most importantly of all, credit, shadow credit. We track who's borrowing, where are they borrowing from, what sectors uh, are active, uh, what regions are active, uh, are state firms versus private firms operating differently. And so it's, it's not just one number or five numbers or even 50 numbers. What we try to do is look at China three-dimensionally through the prism of growth, uh, credit and shadow credit, uh, in the, the jobs market, and and really tell the story of not just one China number, but all the different stories of all the different uh, dynamics happening across the entire Chinese economy. So what is your analysis of your data telling you about the state of the Chinese economy today? And to what extent could Xi Jinping's zero COVID policy and his more assertive regional policies seriously inhibit China's economic development prospects in the longer run? Well, you know, we were tracking COVID dynamics through our corporate networks in April and May, and we knew the entire, uh, you know, huge chunks of the of the economy were shut down. So the second quarter registered a contraction in our data. Uh, you know, it's it, it. I think the official reading was just a little bit above zero, uh, but it was a contraction in, in, in growth overall. Uh, what really should have surprised markets is that uh, you didn't see a recovery coming out of the lockdowns when when things started opening up in June. Uh, we reported that there was no meaningful rebound and uh, that, that firms were not borrowing, they were not investing, they were not hiring. And you know the, the first line of our July data that came out several weeks ago was, beware the July rebound narrative, because things were not getting better. Uh, there's, a, there's a belief from most fund managers, I think, that were, they were of, the, of the opinion, well, look, we've got a party Congress year, things will get better. We've got easing COVID restrictions, things will get better. The data did not get better. And that's because firms right now don't want to double down on borrowing or hiring or investing because they don't think their COVID zero nightmare is over. So right now, things are uh, not great. Uh, it'll be an interesting pivot point to see whether we see uh, any improvement the rest of the year. But certainly the expectations that, that most people had, that you'd have this soaring second half of the year after a weak, 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 weak first half, that, that, that's not in the cards at this point. Given the current weakness of the economy, do you expect the Chinese government to introduce a big stimulus? No. And uh, one of the most important calls that we've had uh, for... <laughs> over a year now, is that the expectation that the Chinese government operates on the old playbook of big stimulus every time there's weakness in the data, big stimulus every time there's a party Congress year, uh, these, are, these are not correct. And uh, you know we're not guessing. The, the beautiful thing here is we're not guessing. You know, we track uh, monetary stimulus through various proxies, including what corporates are doing, thousands and th- thousands of corporates, uh, what their borrowing patterns are, uh, is there loan demand? Is there pent up loan demand? Uh, are, are, are there loan rejections, falling applications? Uh, a whole different suite of, of metrics in the credit world tracking to see whether you're having a more active monetary stimulus or monetary policy. Uh, there is no monetary stimulus going on right now. It's just not registering at all. On the fiscal side, people have, I think, been tricked because there have been beautiful headlines talking about $100 billion of bond issuance here and $200 billion there. So it has, has sounded like since March or so that the Chinese government was really gearing up for some big time uh, infrastructure, maybe you know, reduce the property sector a little bit, uh, just big time fiscal stimulus. And, and that has not happened. 
So we track uh, several different proxies with this, transportation construction being one of them. And our transportation uh, construction sector decelerated from Q1 to Q2. Our commodity sector data, the key commodity sector data, decelerated. Copper slowed. Steel slowed. Aluminum slowed. So the idea that, that we're in the midst of sort of a, 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 a percolation of stimulus activity, either on the monetary side or on the fiscal side, that has not come through in the data. Uh, it could happen in the fall. They could change your mindset. Uh, but if they do, we'll see it. And right now, we don't see anything of, of the sort. And even if it happens, I should say, it's too late to hit before the party Congress anyways. Now, Leighton, I know that you work very closely with a number of central banks, including, most importantly, the U.S. Federal Reserve. In your discussions with the board, what does the Fed care about in regards to China right now? And what are you telling them? Yeah, so I think you'll probably be able to, uh, you're not going to be surprised by my answer, uh, inflation. Uh, they're very, very worried about the idea that something's going to come out of left field, be it from the Ukraine war or from China and its lockdowns uh, or its recovery, and, and we'll, we'll send the Fed on a path that it doesn't want to go on. Uh, and it won't see it coming. So essentially what we've seen because of all the demand destruction from the COVID lockdowns is domestic disinflation. You don't have the same inflation problem you have just about everywhere else in the world for the simple fact that the COVID lockdowns have just crushed demand domestically. Uh, it'll probably improve as China's economy improves in the second half of the year, but you just don't have an inflation issue. What the Fed is worried about, though, is whether China is exporting inflation. Or, or, or will do so. And that's sort of a two-headed beast because on the one hand, what the Fed has been worried about, uh, was worried about in the spring in particular, was the fact that uh, China would export inflation into US supply chains via a supply shock. All these COVID lockdowns, congested ports, shut down traffic arteries in China would create a, 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 supply, uh, a, a supply disaster and it would uh, have a problem of ex, you know, exploiting this inflation into U.S. supply chains through the West Coast ports, etc. Um, the second part of this was the exact opposite thing they were worried about, which was if you had too strong a recovery in demand in China as you were uh, emerging from these lockdowns, then commodities demand would skyrocket, demand across the, the spectrum would skyrocket, and you could have uh, uh, demand-based uh, inflation uh, causing a problem there. The amusing, I mean, amusing interesting, uh, gratifying for the Fed, I suppose, uh, but the interesting uh, uh, takeaway from the last several months of data is that the, the Chinese have actually thread the needle on this. The supply side has gotten better, uh, but at the same time, the, the, the recovery that everyone had been expecting in, in, in economic data uh, has not been there. It's been very modest and, and in some cases uh, weakening. So you haven't had the uh, demand recovery. You have had a recovery in supply chains. So the, so the China, China has not been exporting problematic inflation either through supply shocks or demand recovery into U.S. supply chains. Uh, of course, this could change. And so this is something that the Fed is really laser focused on, because if they're doing everything else right and they've calibrated a strategy for dealing with the U.S. inflation, which they think they have, uh, th what could really knock them off path is is something coming from left field they don't see coming from China. Uh, and, and so they're, they're very, very attentive to this. How do you see Sino-U.S. relations developing in the run-up to the U.S. midterm congressional elections in early November and beyond that, ahead of the U.S. presidential election in 2024? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time on the policy side as well as as providing data. Um, and 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 even before uh, Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, things were slated to get to get worse in the relationship. Um, the China, the big China bill in Congress failed, except for a few key aspects related to semiconductor funding, et cetera. Uh, the Republicans uh, are, are extremely likely to win the House in November and will be coming up with their own tough on China bill. Uh, they may win the Senate, too. But there'll be extraordinary pressure from that, uh, from uh, the run up to 2024, which will, of course, be a referendum on many things. But one of them will be China policy. Who's tougher on China? And then the the, the interesting part about this is the recent dynamics around uh, the, the speaker's trip to Taiwan, the Chinese reaction in terms of military drills for days and days and days. Uh, will has already, but will continue to create an environment around uh, Congress that will incentivize. Uh, some pretty meaningful legislative changes in our treatment in Taiwan. And when you have a you have an act already that, that that's could potentially revise the U.S. position on Taiwan, which has been relatively static since the Taiwan Relations Act in 1979. So you could be seeing big changes in terms of U.S. support for Taiwan, uh, U.S. policy on Taiwan, uh, and all of these things uh, are, will be will be of, of great interest to the uh, <laughs> to, to the Chinese. They're also going to be dealing with export controls on semiconductors and advanced technology. So uh, a lot of people say, you know, we're in such a bad position, bad bad relationship with with U.S. China right now. U.S. China relations are at such a low. They're actually better than they've been for a while up until the recent trip, and and they're better than they're going to be going forward. So I would expect a, a, a more serious deterioration of the relationship over the next the next six months and two years. And just on Taiwan, do you see the U.S. maintaining its essential desire for the status quo and maintaining that one China policy? I do. Uh, but I think that this, you know, what the status quo means has been purposefully ambiguous for decades, and it could become less ambiguous going forward. Uh, for for years, you know, the the Taiwan was was one of the centerpieces of the U.S. alliance, you, you know, U.S. alliance in Asia, and part, most of that was geopolitical, and most of that was historical, based on on, on support for, for for the government for for years and years and years since the days of Chiang Kai Shek. Uh, but um, you got the additional issue with semiconductors now. Advanced semiconductors are made by Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, the probably the most important company in the world. So now you have an additional reason why the United States is has a very strong vested interest in Taiwan not becoming Chinese, uh, fully Chinese, certainly. And, uh, and so the possibility of there being a, a problem a conflict between the U.S. and China, some sort of incident over Taiwan is rising quite dramatically right now because the, Chi uh, the, the Chinese don't look at this as something that they can give up on. At the same time, there's, this is not something that the Americans can give up on. So hopefully cooler heads prevail as we go forward. Uh, but this is getting into a, a, a very different era of, of heightened risk over, over, over Taiwan. And if we look at this from the point of view of the Chinese financial markets, what does all of this mean for the Chinese stock market during the remainder of this year? You know, we have spent a lot of time uh, making few, making a few points to to, uh, to to clients related to the stock market. Uh, the first one is the stock market is not correlated to the real economy. Uh, a lot of 
a lot of people, a lot of funds get very excited when they see good dynamics happening in China, thinking that will reflect in earnings. That is not what historical data has shown. Uh, stock market plays are a reflection of people's bets on government policy and bets on stimulus. And what we've seen over the past, you know, past year is that there has been this overwhelming desire by funds to go hard into Chinese equities. It happened in September 2021 when BlackRock let a bunch of people in. They got crushed. Uh, it happened uh, in you know in December and January. JP Morgan said to go all in on Chinese equities. Happened again in, in February, doubled down. Uh, happened again in, in, in March. Happened again in May and July. Uh, there is this desire to go into Chinese equities based on this, this false idea that valuations are low and therefore this is a very opportune time to invest. Now, this has been 0 for 5 the last time people thought that in the past year for the simple fact that you're not de dealing with a, a you know valuations in a vacuum. You're dealing with a situation where, uh, where expectations of stimulus have been frustrated and will continue to be frustrated. The regulatory crackdown is not over. Uh, the economy is very weak. Uh, so there's a lot of dynamics. International trade is slowing on a global, uh, you know, it's, it's slowing globally. There are a lot of reasons to be very cautious. Now, that doesn't mean that equities won't do well for a period. This may, this time next may be the time to go in. But the, I think that the most important thing that we have seen over the past year is that the reasons that funds have wanted to go in hard to Chinese equities, the reasons have been wrong. So one of these times, you know, everyone might get it right, but the reasons they've been have, have been wrong, and that's because they don't have a very good grasp of what's happening uh, in, in Chinese policy and what's happening across the Chinese economy. You know, we're not at the end of a uh, of a crackdown. Uh, we're 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 in a position where the, there is a paradigm shift in the behavior in, in the treatment of, of of big companies in China and the economic growth model and stimulus going forward. And I think it's important that, that, uh, that fund managers understand that before they go, well, what could be recklessly into Chinese equities, not knowing what they're, what's coming next. Leyland, many thanks for this most interesting insight into the unique service that is provided by China Beige Book. With more time, it would be interesting to discuss in detail your views on the problems in the Chinese property sector. It would also be interesting to hear more about your thoughts on the outlook for the Chinese currency and for the bond market. The Independent Research Forum is offering a brief trial to the China Beige Book service and can provide details of how to subscribe to their full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with Leyland Miller, the CEO of China Beige Book. <laughs> <laughs>